This is Inside Politics, Election 2022. I'm Steve Harrison. On this episode, ballot access politics. So so you were calling as a representative of the Green Party? As a volunteer, yes. Actually, the Green Party believes that call was made by someone else, possibly someone working for state or national Democrats. He asked the caller if he would like to have his name removed from a petition to get the Green Party on North Carolina's ballot because... Parties on the ballot. It'll take votes away from Democrats, giving Republicans a huge advantage. It will help them win North Carolina in 2022 and 2024. We'll discuss the board's reasoning and talk to the Green Party's U.S. Senate candidate, Matthew Ho. That issue concerns the November ballot. And there's another election coming up this month races for Charlotte City Council and mayor. We'll discuss that election and look back on a previous mayoral election with Bruce Clark who managed the campaign of former Mayor Anthony Fox 13 years ago. First joining me as always is Jim Morrill, former politics reporter at the Charlotte Observer. Hey, Steve, how are you? I am good. And Tim Funk, another former Charlotte Observer reporter who also covered politics for years. Hey, Tim. Hi, Steve. So both of you guys are going to be speaking with Matthew Ho of the Green Party in just a few minutes. And uh, what was y'all's initial initial reaction in kind of reading this story about this ballot access fight and what it means for November? Well, it seemed to me that the state it showed that the stakes are pretty high in this U.S. Senate race that the Democrats would bother trying to tamper with uh, a party that got less than two percent last time. It shows that they think it's going to be a pretty close race. And, you know, it could decide, to, you know, who controls the Senate. That's apart from the discussion of whether they should have tampered. They're taking this very seriously. Yeah, Tim's right. This is a race where every vote counts. And I think everybody, both sides are trying to make sure they get all the votes that they can get. And this this could be one way that Democrats are, are looking. This is not to say that there was no fraud or there were no problems with the petition signatures, but it does underscore the importance of the election. Yeah, if you think about all the millions of dollars that are going to be spent on ads trying to convince swing, swing voters and trying to get, you know, Republican voters out and Democratic voters out for, you know, national Democrats, the Democratic Senatorial cam- cam- Campaign Committee to spend probably not that much money to challenge uh, and push back and research the validity of the petitions of the Green Party is probably money well spent, you know, in comparison to how much a major ad campaign costs. Well, and so far we know that those uh, Democratic dollars aren't going to be there necessarily. Uh, The Republicans have committed uh, over $20 million to elect Ted Budd to the U.S. Senate, and their Democratic counterparts have been silent on how much they're going to spend. So Sherry Beasley could be at a disadvantage in the Senate race, and and, uh, anything can help. I think this episode also shows that we've kind of entered a brave new world in North Carolina. We now have there are more unaffiliated voters than either registered Republicans or Democrats. So it seems to present opportunities for third parties and third party candidates. Uh, So this could be the beginning of something uh, that North Carolina hasn't seen before. North Carolina's Green Party thought it would have a candidate on the ballot this fall for the U.S. Senate, joining the Libertarian and, of course, the Democratic and Republican parties. Their party had nearly 16,000 signatures of registered voters approved by county boards of elections, about 2,000 more than required. But the party had another 6,500 signatures that were not certified by local boards. Still, the party met the standards, or so it thought. Here's State Elections Board Executive Director Karen Brinson-Bell giving the reasons for rejecting the Green Party's petitions. There are numerous pages that have obvious signs of fraud or irregularities. 
These include the same handwriting throughout and similar signatures. There are numerous lines with incomplete information or where the name, address, or date of birth are crossed out. The decision was made after Democratic efforts to persuade the board to not certify the Green Party's petitions and to even call people who signed the petition to persuade them to ask that their name be removed. Joining us now is Matthew Ho, the Green Party's designated U.S. Senate candidate. Welcome, Matthew. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, I can guess your answer to this, but uh, why do you think your petitions were rejected? Well, it obviously was a, a deliberate and calculated partisan process. Uh, we met all the requirements. The arguments for keeping us off the ballot are specious. Uh, there are always irregularities in a petition effort. Uh, the rule of thumb is basically th only three or four of your signatures are going to count. That's just not here in North Carolina. That's across the country. We understand that they were talking about less than 20 sheets out of thousands and thousands of sheets that we turned in. People would fill in things incorrectly. They fill in things, you know, missing information or they put the wrong address down. I mean, that's part of the whole process of gathering signatures. And that's why you have the verification process occur at the county boards of election level. But I also want to say, too, though, that I recognize that this is not just the Democrats, that if we have been a, if we are a conservative party, the Republicans would have behaved in a similar manner. And this gets back to why we are doing this. Why are we running as a third party, a grassroots campaign? Because we understand the two-party system as it exists is corrupt, is undemocratic, and it's harmful. So, so, Matthew, before we get into the guts of the controversy, give our listeners a brief summation of what the Green Party stands for, including your main issues. Right. Yeah. Thank you for that, this opportunity to, to, to state that. We are a pro-worker pro-peace, pro-planet party. We believe that housing, healthcare, education, and jobs are human rights. We are against the wars overseas as well as the wars here at home. So the war on drugs or say the, the crime against humanity that's occurring on our border, which I think if that was happening anywhere else in the world, that's how we would describe it. So do you think your candidacy would hurt Sherry Beasley, Democrat Sherry Beasley, who I think would probably share some of your stands on some of those issues. I don't think so. I mean, I, I, look, the amount of overlap we have with the Democrats is minimal. I mean, I would argue that the Republicans have much greater overlap with the Democrats than we do, particularly on issues of the economy, on issues of war. I mean, certainly if you look at how the Democrats and Republicans vote in lockstep on uh, issues regarding the Pentagon, issues regarding Wall Street, issues regarding pharmaceuticals, et cetera. Matthew, let me go back to the petitions for a minute. You collected more than 22,000 signatures, but 6,500 or so were rejected. That seems like a lot. Is it reasonable for people to assume that there might be additional problems with the signatures that they just weren't caught? No, no, because again, I mean, that that's, that's about standard, uh, 70, 75% uh, verification rate is is pretty much standard uh, across the country. Uh, 
And in many cases, what you have is, is you have people are told to bring in twice as many signatures as you need. The, the, you are always going to have these issues when gathering signatures. People are not going to write legibly. People are going to put the wrong address down. People are going to write, you know, uh, in someone else's name because they think it's a funny thing to do. Or we have seen, and this has occurred over and over again, where other parties will sabotage other parties' petitioning efforts. I mean, that's a well-established practice. There's no there's no controversy over that. The parties do that to each other. And this is why I think many of us look at this and say this was all done in bad faith because the state, first of all, the requirement for the state by the state statute is, you know, the counties verify the signatures, which the counties did. We then take those signatures and we turn them into the state in order to be certified as a political party. And the requirement for the state is to immediately and forthwith certify us based on the results of the county. The state took the full 30 days between June 1st and July 1st. And uh, on the last possible day, the state hold a certification meeting. This is why I say this is done in bad faith is because there were other procedural requirements for us to maintain ballot access after the state certifies. So if the state had certified us on June 30th, within 24 hours, we were required to hold a nominating convention, uh, have our folks register as Green Party members, and then our candidates file for candidacy within the 24 hours. I mean, so that's why I say this was done in bad faith, because they waited until the last possible minute. Well, I want to talk to you about your options going forward, the options for your party. But we heard a phone call earlier from someone who said he was representing the Green Party that was recorded by someone who signed the petition. Let's go ahead and listen to that. You're calling to confirm whether or not I signed a petition for uh, for that. So, um, Mass, who are you calling with? Is this is this the Green Party? Yes. So, so you were calling as a representative of the Green Party? As a volunteer, yes. Okay. And would you say you strongly support it or just somewhat support it? I mean, I don't think I'd sign something unless I strongly support it. Okay. Well, thank you for confirming animal participation in elections is important. If the Green Party is on the ballot, it will take votes away from Democrats, giving Republicans a huge advantage that will help them win North Carolina in 2022 and 2024. There's far too much at stake to let this happen. Are you interested in asking to have your name removed from this petition or leave it as is? I'm confused. So if you're with the Green Party, why are you asking to remove? Are you at, I'm sorry? <laughs> yes, I totally That call was recorded by Tony Negege, who is co-chair of the Green Party. What made him record it so quickly in the first place? Was that, did he, does he just record calls? No, 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 no. Um, so in Tony's case, we have been aware of this for a few days and we were all receiving these phone calls because they were calling people multiple times a day, five, six times a day. Um, I saw one screenshot where someone was called four times in three and a half hours. You know, so Tony, he was prepared to record it and other folks recorded it as well. We have some other uh, evidence and people emailing us, telling us it happened. You know, we were aware of this. We, we, we informed the state board of elections, the state board of elections had already received information about this because people are complained to them. Um, this runs parallel to the state board of elections issue where we had the biggest democratic party law firm down here in North Carolina from Washington, DC, uh, utilizing the petition records, which are public records for clearly political purposes in a deliberate deliberately calculated attempt to get people to remove their names from petitions. We should say there was also a letter to the state board from Michael Abushevitz, who has worked as a deputy get out the vote director for the North Carolina Democratic Party and who's represented by the Elias Law Group that you were talking about. 
um, the letter urged rejection of the petition. Uh, WFAE tried to call Abushevitz and the Elias Law Group, and they didn't return calls. But how much influence do you think that letter had with the board? I don't think, honestly, I don't think it had very much. I think this is, a, again, an adjacent or a parallel effort. I mean, certainly there is uh, connections between it. And certainly I think that if we have been certified, the Elias Law Firm and the DSCC and the North Carolina Democratic Party would have used that that complaint and whatever else they were going to gin up in order to challenge us. And I, I think as we move forward in this and as we get our spot on the ballot, I expect us to be challenged with that. But again, they called thousands of people and only about 140 of them agreed to take their name off the petition form. So even if you do take those 140 names off the petition form, which may or may not be uh, possible to do, I don't even know. But clearly, as we have, we documented, as we have recordings and other uh, documentation, they were misleading people in doing so. So I don't even know why the State Board of Elections would allow that to occur. But say they do, that's 140 names removed from the 2088 that we have above the standard that we needed. So now we're talking about that we're about, about what, 1,800 or so signatures more than were required. So they can remove those signatures. That's fine because we still have more signatures than are required to get onto the ballot. Matthew, uh, Tim Funk again. Um, in Michigan recently, five Republican gubernatorial candidates were kept off the ballots because of alleged petition fraud. Do you know if you used any of the signature gathering companies that the Michigan Republicans did? We did actually, uh, and we contracted with them before. I think the Michigan story broke in May, and we had contracted with this company called First Choice in January, so we were completely unaware of that. Um, and it was a completely failed effort with First Choice. All told, in the process of getting our 22,500 signatures, 95% of them came from our people, came from Green Party members, members of my campaign, independents, leftists, socialists, you know, people who believed in what we were doing. And about 5% came from um, contractors, people we hired to help us, particularly at the end, because we wanted to make sure we had enough. We had that buffer, which is, which is what we did. And we do have that buffer of almost 2,100 now. So you so, feel like yeah, you we did we, due we, diligence on that? We did, uh, you know, in the sense of of uh, the second company that we hired, we did. We, we received references. We had people checking things. Okay. I mean, to the best that we could. You know, okay. this is one of the issues here, I think, where people have to understand how ballot access is yeah. simply not fair. So and it's a way to keep th- uh, third parties, uh, grassroots campaigns, independents yeah. off the ballot. In Michigan, these... Republicans are threatening lawsuits. Are you? Uh, I, I can't speak to the specifics, but if anyone thinks that we're just going to lie down and accept this, they don't know who I am. They don't know who my, uh, you know, the other folks in the Green Party are. Uh, there's absolutely no way we're going to accept this. We have a variety of of political, administrative, and legal options available to us, and we're going to pursue those which uh, get our rightful spot on the ballot. Matthew, Tim Funk again. Um, for our listeners, I just want to give a sense of why the Democrats are so nervous about the Green Party here and, and nationally. Um, you know, they basically blame your past presidential nominees, Ralph Nader and Jill Stein, for giving us George W. Bush and Donald Trump and the conservative supermajority on the Supreme Court by taking votes away from those 
Democratic presidential candidates, Al Gore and Hillary Clinton, in pretty close races. What's your answer when people come up to you and say that? I'm sure you've encountered that kind of argument before. Yeah, we uh, we could do a whole show on this. First mm-hmm. of all, with Bush and, and Trump, um, the Electoral College did that. And why the Democrats have not moved to abolish the Electoral College and give us a presidency based upon popular vote rather than something that dates back to a compromise made with slaveholders 250 years ago helps explain some of the issues with the Democratic Party. I mean, there's all the arguments, too, you can make about this. Look, in 2000, uh, 300,000 registered Florida Democrats voted for George Bush rather than Al Gore. I mean, that's the election right there. Same thing, too. You look at, at the 2016 election when 12 and a half million people who voted for Barack Obama in 2012 voted for Donald Trump or sat out the election. You know, the issue is, isn't the fact that Jill Stein got you know, about 1% of the vote. Uh, it's the fact that millions and millions of Americans who have voted for Barack Obama then voted for Donald Trump. Jill Stein didn't do that. But yet. there's no electoral college in North Carolina in the Senate. No. So they're talking about this. what's at stake is control of the Senate. What do you say to that? Right. And, and I would say that, um, look, we have 12 opioid overdose dose a day in North Carolina. Uh, what I'm arguing for is substantially and fundamentally different than what Sherry Beasley argues for. She is not talking about ending the war on drugs like I do. I mean, you know, and and on and on, we can talk about the different uh, ways, uh, the deliberate uh, decisions by Democrats in power in the White House and the Congress have led to these circumstances for working people here in North Carolina. And it, it makes me a different candidate. If we're not on a ballot, those issues aren't there. Matthew, I don't think we've uh, heard the last of the Green Party efforts to get on the ballot this year, but thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, thank you, Tim and Jim. So that was Matthew Ho, the Green Party's U.S. Senate candidate for North Carolina, or uh, hope to be the U.S. Senate candidate for North Carolina, talking about uh, the party's failed efforts so far to make it on the ballot and what he sees as unfair tactics used by the Democratic Party to keep them off the ballot. Um, I think it's so interesting because we're not talking about probably a tremendous amount of votes. If you go back to the 2020 presidential election, um, the Green Party candidate in North Carolina got just about 12,000 votes. That's not a lot. But on the other hand, if you look back at Sherry Beasley's last election in 2020, when she lost re-election to the state Supreme Court, she lost by less than 500 votes, I believe. If you are the the Democratic Party, this is a uh, it's it's probably an opportunity that's too good to pass up to to try and, and keep those keep the Green Party off the ballot. I think he had a point that a lot of people do want to vote uh, for someone who, you know, may not win, but it's a way to express their view. I mean, look at the great great increase in unaffiliated voters in this state. You got to think at least a lot of that is uh, because they don't like the two parties. So I think he has a lot. uh, I think I think he has a good point. On the other hand, we live in a real world and the real world is that he's not going to win this election, whether he's on the ballot or not. But he could keep her from winning, uh, Sherry Beasley, that from winning if it's a really close race, and and you know then they basically that helps Ted Budd. So that's the kind of world we live in where there's a zero sum game, and so he's got to work on that part of the argument. I think you know I think we've seen this before with third party attempts. You know there have been other other groups that have tried to get on the ballot. Some have succeeded, 
but it's a catch-22. If they don't get on the ballot, they don't get the attention and the publicity that a party needs to grow, and so they'll be perpetually uh, uh, smaller. There is a third party on the ballot this year. It is a Libertarian Party, and sometimes we've had the Constitution Party as well and the Green Party. But uh, this year, I think there's only one choice for third-party people in North Carolina. And the polls, the only two polls we've seen in the U.S. Senate race, one said Bud would win, the other said Beasley was ahead, but they both said it was it was very close and within the margin of error. So third parties could play a role this time if he gets on the ballot, and the Libertarian could affect that too. You know, I think I think uh, Democrats are looking for every, every advantage they can get this year, uh, just like Republicans are too. Republicans may end up spending a lot more on this race than Democrats do, so they're looking for an edge. There is an election for Charlotte City Council and Mayor at the end of the month on July 26th. Democratic Mayor Vilaos is expected to easily defeat the Republican challenger, Stephanie de Sarachoga Bilboa. And since it's unlikely we'll have much of a mayor's race this year, we thought we would go back to arguably the city's last great mayor's race between a Republican and a Democrat. That was in 2009 when Democrat Anthony Fox defeated Republican John Lasseter. And what made that race so interesting is that Republican Pat McCrory had easily won the last seven mayoral elections. And before that, Richard Van Root and Sue Meyer had been mayor, and they were both Republicans as well. So going into this race, a lot of people thought that it would be more of the same. But Fox won, and here he is talking at Elon University in 2012 about his decision to jump in the race. I'm convinced that had I not made that decision when I made it, um, a lot of great things would not have happened in Charlotte. And frankly, a lot of the feeling of fulfillment I have that I can relate directly back to my grandparents, I would not have. So for today's show, we're going to speak to Bruce Clark, who managed Fox's campaign 13 years ago. Clark today is the executive director at the Center for Digital Equity at Queens University. Hey, Bruce. Hey, thanks for having me. Sure. Um, Thanks for coming on. So, um, Bruce, earlier I talked about how Republicans had won every mayoral race since 1987. And up to that point, a lot of people in the media, I think myself included, assumed that it would be more of the same in 2009. But this story kind of goes back to 2008. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, leading into 2009 was obviously a year and a half long campaign for the presidency, but um, obviously the Barack Obama campaign and the energy uh, and enthusiasm that that brought to this community and many communities across the country was, um, you know, alive and well leading into the end of 2008 as the candidates for the mayor's office began to kind of uh, formalize. And what you worked on the Obama campaign here in Charlotte, right? That's right. Yeah. I was a deputy regional field director for the Obama campaign in the primary and the general election. And of course, that effort paid off. Obama won the state of North Carolina by, by I think, uh, a quarter of a percentage point in 2008. Would not have done it without the big turnout in Mecklenburg County. Bruce, I want to ask, in 2004, John Kerry won Mecklenburg by three percentage points. And then four years later, Obama won it by more than 26 So, you know, clearly those were your voters to win this mayor's race. But did you have any doubt that you could bring those people out for an off-year mayoral election? Oh, boy. I feel like part of me wants to say, looking back, no, I had no doubt. (laughs) But I suspect that was, uh, you know, some doubt. I would would say, in my case, 
I think there was very little doubt and there was uh, only expectations on victory. You know, clearly the momentum in 2008 was overwhelming, right? Just the amount of residents from, you know, residents who typically hadn't been politically active who were. And, you know, even if we could get a fraction of them to stay engaged, uh, we, we felt pretty confident that we would be able to win this race. Looking back now at the final margin of victory, I think that was definitely some heartburn that evening, watching those votes come in, seeing how close it was. Um, I think I probably had anticipated winning by a larger margin, uh, but, you know, it was a win nonetheless. So, Bruce, you said you, you thought the final margin of victory would be bigger. I think it was uh, that Fox won by three percentage points. And then when the, the votes came in that night, this is before uh, early voting was a big deal. I think you guys were kind of behind throughout the early part of the night. Is that right? Yeah, I, I have a little bit of uh, a little bit of PTSD from thinking about that evening because we were at the Weston uh, Hotel and Anthony and family and Harvey Gant and others were held up in a in a room upstairs and the crowd was gathering downstairs and um, you know as the, you know as numbers came in and it was close and it, it wasn't guaranteed um, you know that was that was tense that was really really tense uh, coming I think the energy we thought we would be further along than we were. Um, obviously we ended up in the right place, but, um, but, you know, I remember walking into that hotel suite and, um, you know, at that point you're, you're just basically wishing and praying that things work out in your favor and you can feel the energy in the room, just wanting to be excited, uh, but waiting for the, that moment when we really could be. Yeah. I just, I think about that now. I mean, it now races are so different because they post early votes at seven 30, a huge chunk of, we basically know how the race is going to go at seven 30, but back then we really didn't. I mean, it was a precinct by precinct, you know, and, and the, the tally changed and, uh, and I don't think it necessarily went back and forth. I just think that if I remember Fox kind of chipped away at, at the lead and then came overtook it at the very end. Um, Bruce, let's back up just to the beginning of the campaign. Tell me about Anthony Fox when he first ran. I mean, was he the same candidate he was in 2012? I mean, did he get better at doing this? What What are your early memories? Yeah, I mean, I met Anthony, you know, in the 2008 campaign, right? He was an advocate for the Obama campaign. I actually, I actually think he had originally aligned himself with Hillary Clinton's campaign and then and then switched, you know, became more engaged in the campaign. And, and so we, you know, began to develop a relationship and I got to know him more and 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 then we you know jump into 2009 and had the opportunity you know to be called on to run his campaign and i think back on it now he's he was only 38 years old and you know i'm older than that now and i think about wow 38 year old running for mayor and winning and just the energy and enthusiasm and excitement that he was able to bring his youthfulness and let alone his sort of deep experience in this community from, you know, his family history and his work of his father and uh, let alone his, his own, his own work. You know, I just remember him being wicked smart, you know, policy wonk, right. Just probably in some context to a fault, just really in the weeds and, and really uh, spent a lot of time on the policy side. Uh, but, you know, when he needed to be uh, the campaigner, when he needed to be the politician, um, you know, to press the flesh, so to speak. Uh, he had a he had a way of turning that on that um, you know resonated uh, obviously with uh, residents in this community and, and resonated with me. You know, I think back to the climate in 2009. You know, the recession and the sense of economic downturn. And I always remember Anthony telling a story about a coach um, in his high school that was a track coach that trained the, the students and Anthony that 
you pass more people when you run uphill. Most people, when it's challenging, slow down, bury their head in the sand, try to survive. And that's the moment when you press the gas and try to run uphill and you can pass more folks. And that was kind of the energy of the campaign, right? Which is we can't bury our heads in the sand. We have an opportunity here to lead this emerging city into the future and like, let's go get it. And so still exciting to talk about it today. Do you think that the recession played into that campaign and that people wanting something different or, or, or were the demographics just kind of moving the, the Democrats way regardless? I would actually think that the recession may have had an opportunity to benefit John Lasseter in the kind of sort of fiscal responsible, typical high level talking points. Um, whereas the energy from 2009 changed, new leadership, youthfulness uh, benefited Anthony. But the changing demographics, right? I mean, it, I remember feeling like Charlotte was a changing city then. I mean, it's, it's obviously crazy to look back on now to think about how much we've actually changed since then. But I do think that that was really the beginning of, eh, I, I really think that was the beginning of Charlotte trying to come up with its own identity, its new identity. And that was really, to me, kind of the beginning of that shift um, politically as well as culturally in the city was uh, getting Anthony elected. Not so much, yes, Anthony, but also just the idea of change coming out of 14 years of the same mayor. It was like, Charlotte's a different city now. Change is inevitable. Let's get on with it. Yeah, I remember when I covered city council in those days, 2008, 2009, 2010. I mean, there just wasn't much citizen activism in terms of public speaking. Council did its business. They went on. And then kind of leading into 2012, you started hearing from different voices from the community wanting change and wanting different things. And that was, I mean, that was just really new. So maybe the, you know, the seeds of that were, were started a few years earlier. One memory I have, Bruce, of campaign events is that Anthony Fox was often late and showing up. Uh, it bothered John Lasseter. What was going on there? Was that strategy or was that just that the former mayors struggled to keep a schedule? Well, if there was a struggle to keep a schedule, that would probably have fallen on my responsibility <laughs> to keep him on schedule. But I mean, first and foremost, I always just want to recognize what an incredible competitor John Lasseter was and, and how much value he's brought to the city. And I still have an opportunity to see him around Charlotte and his leadership. And, you know, he, even though he didn't win that race, he's obviously continued to shape this city. And so it was an honor to, to you know, fight against him in that context. He sharpened me and made me a better campaigner and also just a better citizen of this community. So hat tip to John. But you know, I think a combination of, you know, we were hustling, right? So it was finance calls right up until you walk into the room. And, you know, if you were on, if you had somebody on the phone, you know, they were going to take precedent over getting in the room to do something with, with John and, and, you know, maybe, maybe a little bit of gamesmanship there and keeping folks uh, on their toes as we navigated through this. I know we, we also had some debates about debates and how many there were going to be. And, you know, we thought we were ahead. And so obviously if you're ahead, you want to do less debates. Um, if you're behind, you want to do more. And so there was, there was a lot of, I think, gamesmanship going on, and, you know, whatever, whatever lever there was to, to press, we were, we were trying to move them all to, you know, overcome 14 years of, of inertia running in the other direction. Was there a moment during this campaign when you had any doubt? I mean, you've said a few times that you thought, thought you were ahead, but there had to be times when you questioned whether you guys were going to be able to break that streak. Yeah. I, you know, I was, in my mid twenties. And I think just in my own doubt of my own capabilities to manage a campaign. I mean, you know, Anthony was Mel Watts campaign manager and, and I was Anthony's camp. There was sort of a lineage. There was political history. There was deep community meaning and impact to this race. And so 
I think if, if I led with doubt, it was more in my own ability to deliver for Anthony, something I always, you know, took personally, especially coming out of 08 and the way I felt about Barack Obama and the way that I began to learn more about this community. 2009, it was, you know, the fanfare is gone, but the meaning is still the significant, and if not perhaps even more significant because of the way local politics impact our daily lives. So for me, there was doubt um, in my own capabilities. Um, some of that was um, often talked off the ledge by one of Anthony's close confidants and now uh, Governor Cooper's uh, staff member, but uh, Kevin Monroe, a well-known political uh, operative here in Charlotte. I mean, I would lay on Kevin's couch, probably crying my eyes out about something I messed up on. Uh, and Kevin would walk me off the, the ledge. Um, um, but in terms of doubt about victory, I think I was just too naive. I think it was like, there's only one outcome and we're going to win and it's going to happen at any ethical, reasonable way we're going to make this win. So doubt was very not necessarily talked about in that fashion. So you're on the couch and you're upset about something you said you failed. I mean, what would that have been? Like, I mean, help me, give me some understanding about what would be such a big deal to put you in, in such a tailspin. I, I mean, early, early on here, here's this young, you know, young person who doesn't have a 704 phone number and Charlotte was much smaller then, and there wasn't as much, you know, outside influence as there is today in that context. And so, you know, this was a historic race. People knew it. And they're like, who's this young kid from Chicago who's got an Arizona phone number running the most important local race we've had in a long time. And so there was some pressure from other political operatives, you know, that probably thought they should have gotten the job. That's one piece. And then just the ability to execute, right? To turn out, you know, again, the coming off of 08, there's an expectation that we're just going to have hundreds of people ready to knock doors, you know, every weekend. And people were tired from 2008. They'd given like every ounce of their life and being to, to moving that across the finish line. So there was a little bit of a sense of exhalation in 2009 celebration, rightfully so, paired with some exhaustion. <laughs> and that didn't always play well in the context of trying to drum up the energy needed to win a race. And so there was some scrappiness needed to do that. It was just different. It was hard. It was real hard. Toward the end of the race, the Charlotte Observer endorsed Anthony Fox. And, and I just want to kind of pause for a minute. I mean, that was a time when the newspaper had a much larger, larger circulation. This is before social media. Uh, so kind of a two-part question. One, how much impact did that endorsement have? And then if you were running this race today, would it matter nearly as much? I, I think it still matters uh, very much so. I think, you know, especially the more local the race, the more significant our local media is, the power of the storytelling and the, and the proximity that storytellers and the media have on a local race just is, is a different different scale. So there may be other means to communicate an endorsement other than in the printed paper. And there are obviously other people doing endorsements now and they're equally important endorsements, you know, a lot of the Black Political Caucus, which was incredibly important in 2009 as well. But that observer endorsement was like a gold star. That was the, you know, I recall driving in the middle of the night to the back of the loading dock of the, of the observer and waiting for the papers to come down the chute and begging one of the drivers to hand us a copy. And I was sitting there with Jill Santuccio, who is a, a, one of our campaign partners, and flipping to that page. And I've talked about crying a lot in this campaign, but I cried. I mean, that was the moment where, you know, we had no control other than to do our best to try to win that endorsement. And to see that um, happen was pure joy um, because you know, a sense of validation that we were heading in the right direction. Uh, we knew that Anthony was the right choice, obviously, but to like see it in that 
meaningful publication and to have that be viewed in such a critical way, it was, um, it was a moment. I mean, I can sort of feel being back there in the, the you know, the darkness of the night and the, the trucks, the rumbling of the trucks and the fumes from the exhaust and just like, here I am. This is so weird. What am I, what am I doing? How, this is, this is really important. This is just felt strange. It was a great moment. Just to date all of us here, you're on the loading dock at the Observer, which was at the old building on Stonewall and Tryon, which is now demolished in a Bank of America skyscraper. So a lot has changed in 13 years. Bruce, I want to ask one more question. I remember the night of the election or the day after um, Glenn Birkins at Q City Metro kind of he did a story and he put up the map. Uh, the red blue map of the city. And it showed, you know, kind of that classic uh, crescent wedge where Anthony Fox won the crescent, won the, won the crescent, John Lasseter won the wedge. And I think Glenn wrote kind of looking at the results and said something in the effect of that Charlotte will always from now have a African-American mayor. And he didn't necessarily mean someone who was black, but he said someone who was going to cater and listen to the black population first and foremost. I mean, do you remember that? And I think it's probably shown to be correct, right? To your point about Charlotte being a changing city, I think the thing that hasn't changed, perhaps, I don't know this from a data perspective, but, you know, we've had strong African-American leadership in this community for, you know, a long time. Obviously, you know, Harvey Gann and others have a history of helping move this community forward. And, you know, I think Anthony was obviously a visual representation, but also authentic representation, somebody who grew up off of Beatty's Ford Road. I mean, he saw this city grow and knew about uh, disinvestment in historically marginalized communities and understood the impact that had on young people and uh, the way that they grew up and thought about the city. His stories that he told on that campaign have shaped the way that I do my work today as I think about our built environment and the way that we communicate how we value our citizens and the way that we spend our tax dollars and the way that our city provides its services. And I think that things like corridors of opportunity now are can track some of that history back to moments like 2009, where folks in this community began to feel like they actually had somebody representing their interest in city government at such a high level that began to perhaps create some sense of empowerment to help actually chip away at some of these longstanding issues that we have, not only here in Charlotte, but across the country. All right, Bruce, thank you so much for coming on and joining us. Thanks, for having Thanks me. again for being with us. And um, you'll be watching on the, on the 26th, right? Or no? I'll be watching for sure, you know, the, the refreshing the site. But I think we kind of know, like you said, we know where it's heading. And um, I think that the next election after this one is probably going to be really interesting too. So we'll see. Gotcha. All right. Thanks again. I appreciate it. Thank you. So that was Bruce Clark, who managed Anthony Fox's campaign in 2009 for Charlotte mayor. Jim, Tim, we were all working at the paper then covering that race in some form. And uh, what do y'all, a little trip down memory lane, what did, what did, what'd you think? You know, I wanted to start with uh, something you alluded to, Steve, which was um, going back to 2004 and John Kerry carrying Mecklenburg County. And it, I think he was the first Democrat to carry Mecklenburg County in years and years and years. And um, he carried it narrowly. And then, um, as you and Bruce said, in 2008, uh, Obama carried it by a lot more, by a much bigger percentage. And I think it just shows you how the demographic shift had been going on that time. And, and we didn't see it, I think, because Pat McCrory kept getting elected as a Republican. And there was a sizable demographic shift that was kind of going on under our noses. 
which is maybe more obvious now than it was then. But, um, you know, Charlotte is just a much different city politically and demographically than it was. Yeah, I had been in I had been in Charlotte for three years or a little less than three years, you know, in, during at, at the point in the 2009 campaign. You know, I had my impression was in my reporting and talking to people that John Lasseter was the favorite just because, like you said, I mean, Republicans had won so many mayoral elections. I was struck that Bruce Clark just now said that they felt they were going to win this thing the whole time. They thought they were going to win it by a larger margin. I mean, Jim, what, what's your memory of that race? I mean, do you did you feel like that Anthony Fox was the favorite or how do you remember it? No, I don't think he was a favorite at all. And I do think uh, John Lasseter probably raised more money uh, looking back. And, and uh, it just seemed like he was more in the tradition of the Republicans, uh, you know, who'd gotten elected going back to 1987. We hadn't had a Democratic mayor since Harvey Ganton last won in 85. You know, so I think Lasseter was probably the favorite. And uh, I think the polls probably indicated that, at least the early polls. What was interesting to me, Steve, was that uh, I remember uh, the night of the 2016 election, I was writing the presidential story and all these South Charlotte and South Park voting places that had been happy to vote for uh, Mitt Romney and uh, John McCain and, you know, the sort of country club Republicans uh, were going for Hillary Clinton. So the new the new Republican Party, the Trump Party, doesn't even carry the suburbs in Charlotte uh, always. And. And yet they're they're more powerful in these outlying counties where the Democrats used to have at least some traction. But now, you know, Gaston, Union, Cabarrus, uh, you can't get elected dog catcher if you're a Democrat. No, you're right. I think Republicans in Mecklenburg County are really an endangered species now. I mean, look at the most recent votes and even in some of the... um, the, the more recent statewide votes, that wedge that used to be solidly Republican um, in the southeast is is now trending Democratic. You know, at least parts, many parts of it are. You know, Republican strength is, like you said, you know, still in the suburbs, the ex- exurbs, if you will. But, um, you know, Mecklenburg County has changed a lot. You know, I, I think I have to bring up the story that uh, that Bruce told about the Observer loading dock, just the difference in the media landscape in 2009 mm. compared to today. I mean, really, maybe Twitter was just getting off the ground. I think I'd been on Facebook for a few months at that point um, and how much things have changed. And just in the old days, 13 years ago, the impact of an endorsement in the Charlotte Observer, a front page profile, a front page story, hard to overstate what a big deal that was. So definitely change, you know, the observers change, you know, we all work there and uh, you know, it's certainly not alone. I mean, uh, mainline newspapers across the country are facing some of the same challenges. So it's a lot different now. You know, I think iPhones were just a couple of years old in 2009. Um, you know, you can't underestimate the impact today of social media on things. So Everything has changed. And we've got other players like Axios and like uh, the Ledger. And so there's more media out there in a way. I mean, it's different than it was, certainly. And the Observer's still doing some great work. I just think they've shrunk a lot. But there's more room for other players. Yeah, more probably. WFAE too. (laughs) Maybe almost as many journalists as that used to be. But just the, right, the not having the impact of the one fist, you know, the one punch of the paper was a, was, is a big deal. We do have a city general election coming up soon, not usually in July, but this July there is a general election and there are four Republicans running at large. It'll be interesting to see how they do in a low turnout election in a Democratic city. Yeah, it was the, the only chance is if turnout is so incredibly low, I think any kind of a 
a traditional city election uh, with traditional turnout, they don't have a chance. But the hope is that uh, so few people will go to the polls, one Republican or two can sneak in there. That was the latest episode of Inside Politics Election 2022. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks. Inside Politics is a production of WFAE. Thank you.